we're going to talk about the outcomes of the book of Revelation. Hello, friends, and welcome or welcome back. We are into it. We're in Revelation. We've been looking at the book of Revelation and eschatology. We started with Matthew 24 and 25 to give us a good foundation to understand Revelation. We talked about frameworks for understanding Revelation, why it's hard to understand, why it's easy to misunderstand. And then we began to get into the meat of the book the author's intent, the main characters, the storyline and dramatic flow. And on this episode, we're going to talk about the outcomes of the book of Revelation. And in all of this, I have relied heavily on other scholars who've done tremendous research and tremendous study, and I am especially indebted to Kenneth Gentry Jr. And so I just want to continue to encourage you, if you have deeper interest, because we're going for a very quick overview on this podcast, but if you really want to dive in deep, I encourage you to check out Kenneth Gentry's website, his books, his talks on YouTube. They were very, very helpful to me. And of course, that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that he says about everything, but in regards to Revelation, I really appreciate his insight, and I really appreciate the research that he's done connecting it with the whole narrative of Scripture. So let's get into some of the outcomes of the book of Revelation. John has communicated this vision that he received from the angel, that the angel received from Jesus, that Jesus received from the Father, and God the Father gave it to Jesus to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So John is revealing to his readers what is about to happen, and he's writing to encourage them. And you'll remember we talked about the storyline that God has put away his unfaithful wife, the harlot that was old covenant Israel. He has put his unfaithful wife away. He has taken a new bride, the spotless bride, the church, the people of God redeemed by the blood of Jesus, made righteous by the blood of Jesus, spotless by the grace of of God and made righteous by his blood. And he takes a new bride, and this church overcomes the enemies of God. And this book is written to Christians suffering in the first century, being persecuted by the Romans, being persecuted by the Jews, and it encourages them, hang on. Yes, things are bad. Yes, things are difficult, but you are going to overcome. And it's a book of encouragement telling them that their greatest persecutors are going to be overcome by the Lamb, and that through their perseverance, they are going to accomplish something magnificent, the coming of the kingdom of heaven to earth, the establishing of the reign of Jesus on the earth. And so we're going to talk about those outcomes today. John has told this story, and now we need to begin to talk about what is the result of this story. So let's talk about a few outcomes of Revelation The first major outcome of Revelation is the permanent end of the Old Covenant. Now, when Jesus came, when he gave the Last Supper, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus established the new covenant while he was on the earth, and he made this covenant with his disciples, and then they were to go and make disciples of all nations. But the Old Covenant continued to exist for a period of time simultaneously with 
the new covenant. And we've talked about this a little bit before in our other podcast. But just for review, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. It says at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, at that time, and that's when Moses received the law, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So basically, in Hebrews, what he's talking about is the new covenant replacing the old covenant. And he says, once more, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So I'm going to make a new covenant. And remember, when Jesus makes the new covenant, he doesn't just make it on the earth. He actually enters into heavenly places by his own blood. And so the covenant is made not only on earth, but also in heaven. And he says this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the removal of visible things, the removal of a visible temple. And so for a period of history, after Christ has been crucified and resurrected, the old temple system is still established. And you remember Jesus told his disciples that the temple would be torn brick from brick, and they asked him, when is this going to happen? What's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus answers the question, and then he caps that all off by saying, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have come to pass. And a generation was 40 years. And so roughly 40 years after Jesus said those things, AD 70, Wikipedia says that Jesus was crucified between AD 30 and 33, somewhere in that window. And so the temple was the visible thing that Hebrews was talking about that was going to be removed. It was going to be taken away so that there would be no remnant left, nothing left. The old covenant would be completely obliterated. When the Romans tore apart the temple, they not only destroyed the place where the Jewish people would interact with the presence of God and offer their sacrifices, but they also destroyed all the genealogical records so that there could never be another priesthood established because only those of the line of Aaron could be priests. And so the genealogical records were destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and that's why this is such a cataclysmic end to the Old Covenant, and that's one of the major outcomes of the book of Revelation. So look with me at Galatians chapter 4, and in this passage, Paul is warning people who are going back to the Old Covenant law after believing in Christ. And he writes this, beginning in verse 21, "'Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law?' For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So that's talking about Moses, the Old Testament law. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Paul is writing this before 70 AD, 
describing Jerusalem, describing the old covenant system still intact, saying she is in slavery with her children. Then verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And then look down at verse 29. It says, but just as at that time, He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So the Old Covenant Jews were persecuting the Christians, persecuting the followers of the way, as they called it, or sometimes they called it a Nazarene sect, that they they were mad, they were angry that these new followers of Jesus were hijacking their religion, they felt like. And, you know, at one time, even the Apostle Paul was among them, so much so that he was involved in persecuting the church and arresting Christians. But then God changed him. He met Jesus. But he's writing now and saying, look, it's still this way now. Old Covenant Israel is still persecuting New Covenant children. And now I'm reading verse 30 of Galatians 4. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. What he's saying is don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back under rules and laws that cannot make you right before God. Jesus and his shed blood is where our righteousness comes from. And so Paul is writing before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the destruction of the temple, and he's contrasting these two covenants. But we see in the dramatic flow of Revelation John is telling the believers, hang on, you're going to overcome the old covenant system, those people who are persecuting you, the harlot, the beast, they're going to be overcome. They're going to come to an end. Listen to Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And you remember we talked about that the harlot is Babylon, and Babylon is identified elsewhere in Revelation as the great city where our Lord was crucified. So this is talking about Jerusalem. The original readers would have known right away, this is Jerusalem, the city where our Lord was crucified. It's old covenant Israel. And at the end of the book, she is fallen. Verse 4 of chapter 18 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up high as heaven. And you remember when we looked at Matthew 24, Jesus gave the people the same warning. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee from the city. And so this is one of the major outcomes of the story that John is telling. It's the end of the Old Covenant, the end of the Old Covenant system, the temple system, the destruction of Jerusalem. And listen to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this, again, written before the uh, destruction of the temple, and it's getting ready to vanish away. 
And so as I mentioned, no temple means no sacrifices, no priesthood. No priesthood means there's no more biblical Judaism. And this is the first and major outcome of the story of Revelation. Okay, that was number one. The second major outcome is there's a new bride. There's a new people of God that now come. The bride replaces the old harlot. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. That says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So now the Gentiles are included as God's people. Let's look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what he's saying is it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised. What matters is that you're a new creation. You're born again. You get a new spirit from God. Verse 16 says, And as for all who walk by this rule, that circumcision doesn't matter, but only what only matters is the new creation, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the Israel of God is those who walk by this rule, that circumcision doesn't matter, that it's only the new creation. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And listen to this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. And the same idea is echoed in Revelation itself. In Revelation 2.9, it's the letter to the church in Smyrna, and he writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there are people who are saying they're Jews, but they're not the people of God. Like Paul has said in Romans chapter 2, what makes you a Jew is a matter of the heart. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's the spiritual rebirth. And look at Revelation 3, 9, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So God has established a new people, a new bride, the spiritual circumcision, the spiritual new birth. It's not about whether you were born in a Jewish family. It's about whether you were born from above, like Jesus said in John chapter 3. And listen to Hebrews 12. We looked at part of this chapter earlier, but 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now let's read from Revelation chapter 21. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So the bride is the new Jerusalem. It's this heavenly citizenry, like Philippians 3.20 says, that our citizenship is in heaven. Or like we already read in Galatians chapter 4, where it says 
the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So we are those who are born in Zion, born from the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And this is the bride coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21.9 says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this, as we talked about when we looked at the major characters in the book of Revelation, this is the church. And this is one of the major outcomes of this story, that there's a new bride, the new Jerusalem. And perhaps some people listening think, well, man, I thought that was you know, the end when all of time stops and this new city comes out of heaven and comes and sits on the earth. But we have to remember that we're reading a very symbolic book. So this city that comes out of heaven, it's measured 12,000 stadia. It's a cube, and 12,000 stadia, according to the footnote in my Bible, is about uh, 1,380 miles. So it's a cube that is 1,380 miles long, wide, and high. And he gives the measurements of the wall and what it was made of. And later he describes it saying, there's no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. And by its light, the nations walk and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so I understand that um, those of us who originally had a very futurist perspective on the book of Revelation perhaps are inclined to take this very literally. But in the context of what we've read up to now, to me it fits much better into Revelation, into the New Testament, into the narrative of the whole Bible to say this is a picture of the kingdom of God coming on the earth and that there is a progressiveness to the kingdom of God overtaking the kingdoms of this world. And we've talked about that in our series, uh, Christ, Kingdom, and Covenant. And we've talked about that as we've discussed what the gospel is that Jesus preached, that the gospel was that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the kingdom of heaven is close, and that it's God's will for his kingdom to fill the whole earth, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of how wonderful and how good and how magnificent God is, God wants that knowledge to fill the whole earth the way that waters cover the sea, that Every part of the earth will be filled with a knowledge of how good God is. And I believe that this city coming out of heaven is not meant to be interpreted as a literal cube that's one day going to come out of heaven, which, by the way, if this were a literal city, it would stick uh, so far off of planet earth. Uh, According to uh, spacetoday.org, space shuttles fly at about 200 miles above earth. Uh, It says sometimes they fly near 400 miles altitude. The Russian space station Mir is also about 200 miles altitude, and uh, most satellites are between 100 and 300 miles 
altitude. So here, if we had a 1,300-mile-high city, it would be well out of the Earth's atmosphere. So I think those numbers are not pointing to a physical city that's going to descend from heaven and sit on the Earth. But it's just beautiful, epic, apocalyptic language of the New Jerusalem, which is referred to in other places as the people of the new covenant, the bride. And of course, the only people who can be part of the family of God are those who are made righteous. It says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So it's like the parable of the wedding banquet that we uh, looked at in the podcast episode, The Kingdom of God Be Like. And the master of the wedding banquet comes in and there's someone who is not in wedding clothes. And so he's. this is confirming that, saying, you must be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Your name must be written in the Lamb's book of life. You must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to be included in this city, to be part of the heavenly Jerusalem, to be part of the bride of Christ. And then look at this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, which is a beautiful contrast to the harlot when we talked about the uh, the forehead of the harlot. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And look down with me at Revelation 22, verse 14 and 15. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And this is another reason why I think the description of the new Jerusalem and this new city is not talking about the end of all time and when Jesus sets up his reign on the earth forever, which I believe will happen. But I don't think that's what John is describing here because at that point, there wouldn't be any dogs or sorcerers or sexually immoral, any murderers or idolaters because those people would have all already been thrown into the lake of fire. And so I believe that John is providing this vision of the new Jerusalem as a place to be entered into right now. And I just want to clarify something right here to avoid any misunderstanding. And this is why it's important to take the whole counsel of God as we read the book of Revelation. But if you read this, you might be tempted to think, oh, salvation is by works. You have to be a good person. If you commit sexual immorality, then you can't go into the new Jerusalem. You can't enter into the kingdom of God because the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the liars, they're all outside of the kingdom of God. And that is true, but here's how to understand that in the full counsel of the scripture. 
Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's what Revelation is talking about when we wash our robes. It's through faith in Christ. It's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be a good person, save yourself, be a moral person, and you'll get into heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've been born again. They have a new spirit, a new heart, and they want to live to please God. And so those are the people who have washed their robes. They've received the righteousness of Christ as a gift. It's not that they've been really good people and they've earned it, but we were all the same level of brokenness. We were all the same level of sinfulness. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all the same. We all need a Savior. And those who receive the gift that God gives to us, receive the gift, the free gift of salvation, they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and they can enter into the kingdom of God, not because they were good people, but because they received God's gift, God's grace. And that's what John is talking about. The kingdom of God is something to be entered into right now, not based on works, but by grace through faith. And of course, yes, I believe that Jesus will set up his physical kingdom and reign on the earth. And I think we can establish that from other places in the scripture. But what I see here is a description of the kingdom of God that he is making. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And this is the process, not I've made everything new immediately, but this is the process of the kingdom of God. I'm making all things new. The kingdom of God is the mustard seed that grows and becomes a tree. The kingdom of God is the yeast that works its way through the whole batch of dough. The kingdom of God is expanding and growing on the earth, and it will fill the whole earth according to the prophecy given in Daniel, that it will be the rock that struck the stone and became a mountain, and the mountain fills the whole earth. And the the picture of the river of life, again, is a, is a picture of a kingdom. We see in other places where kingdoms are described as rivers. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 7, it says, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So this is just another place in scripture where river is describing a kingdom. And in Revelation, it's describing a river that flows from the throne of God. This is the kingdom of God. And the fruit that is borne by the trees next to the river are to heal the nations. And that evokes the imagery of Psalm chapter 1 that says, Blessed is the man 
who will not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And so I believe this is a picture of the kingdom of God, the people in the kingdom of God who bring healing to the nations, that we are the peacemakers, we are the ones bringing reconciliation between God and man and between men and their fellow men. And that is what Revelation is giving a picture of. And I know perhaps this has raised some questions, but I want to go on to another outcome of the book of Revelation and of the vision that John has shared with his readers. Because another outcome is the millennium, the thousand-year reign. And so perhaps as we talk about the millennium, it will also answer maybe some questions that are coming up as we talk about the bride and as we talk about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. But let's read where Revelation talks about this in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so it's worth pointing out, first of all, that the thousand-year reign is only mentioned once in the whole Bible. And so, as I said at the outset of our study of Revelation, we really want to take Revelation in the context of the entire counsel of the Word of God. We want to try and understand Revelation in the context of the whole Bible and perhaps do our best not to build a theology or an eschatology around things that are only found in Revelation, or we can only see it at one place in the Bible, but to really try and let everything be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And so we only get this thousand-year reign mentioned in this chapter of this book uh, in Revelation. And in other places in the scripture where the number 1,000 is used, it's generally not in a literal sense, but it's more in the sense of a lot. Uh, You remember where uh, David killed Goliath, and then they sang songs about him, that Saul has killed his thousands, and David had killed his tens of thousands. Well, it, it wasn't, David obviously hadn't killed tens of thousands, but it was just this celebration, this greatness, celebrating the greatness of the event. Exodus 26 says that God is showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And of course, it doesn't just mean to thousands, but basically to everyone. In Deuteronomy 1.11, Moses is blessing the people and he says, God bless you and make you a thousand times as many. And of course, he doesn't mean just a thousand, not 999, not a thousand and one, but boom, just a thousand. But it's a symbolic number that means a lot. Psalm 59 It says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And of course, we know it doesn't mean that he only owns those cattle uh, and not any others, but it means that he owns the cattle on all the hills. A thousand hills is just a way of saying every hill. It's a poetic way of speaking. Psalm 84.10, better is one day with you than a thousand elsewhere. And of course, we know that a thousand and one days elsewhere would not be better than one day with the Lord, but David's just saying that 
I'd rather be with you than have, you know, lifetimes, a million days elsewhere. You know, it's just better than any number. So a thousand suggests a number with far-reaching, perfect consequences. It suggests just a lot, a great, great number. And the other thing to notice is that this language of a thousand is set among other symbolic language. So if we read, there's a bottomless pit and a great chain and the dragon. And so I don't think most people would probably interpret those things literally. Again, we don't even need to. It says that the dragon is Satan. But again, we're still getting this very symbolic language. Um, is Satan literally bound with a chain? I mean, I guess I guess it's possible in the spirit that there could be chains and there could be a literal bottomless pit. But it seems like we're still in the throes of very symbolic language, just like he was talking. I mean, he does. He talks about it as a dragon, like the other language that we saw earlier with the beast and the harlot and all of those things. And it says that he was bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And I believe this is talking about what Jesus said in John 12, 31 and 32, when he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so we know from 1 John five nineteen that says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But Jesus in John 12, as he's preparing to go to the cross, as he's preparing to be lifted up from the earth, talking about being nailed to the cross, he says he will cast the ruler of this world out. I believe this is what it talks about in Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15. It says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 12 when he says, you can't plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man. And he was referring to the devil. And Jesus, when he had victory over death, victory over sin, and victory over Satan at the cross, he bound Satan. So in Revelation chapter 20, John is sharing the vision he received, and he sees the devil bound because Jesus has already overcome the devil. He has bound Satan. And the other thing we see in chapter 20 of Revelation is people seated on thrones. And Paul says that we are already seated with Christ. In Revelation 20, it says, they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years, or again, basically forever, for a really, really long time. And in Revelation chapter 1, he already says that he had made us to be a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So again, I believe the thousand-year reign is a picture of life in the kingdom of God, of the people of God, the church reigning over the devil. And one of the reasons I think it's important for us to understand this is this is the mindset that we should have as the church, that we exist on the earth as the representative of God's government to administrate the reign and rule of Jesus on planet earth. 
We are not stuck here waiting for Jesus to vacuum us off into heaven, but we are commissioned to be here to administer the kingdom of God and to expand the rule and reign of Jesus. We have authority over the devil. We're not waiting for the devil to come and eat us and Jesus is going to snatch us out of his jaws. We are trampling on serpents, trampling on scorpions, trampling on lions. We have the authority. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus has destroyed the devil. He has already done it. He has destroyed the one who has the power of death. Satan is bound and he does not have authority over humanity the way that he did before the cross. Now, is Satan still wreaking havoc on the earth and in people's lives? Yes, unfortunately, he is. Yes, we still see the devil working on planet earth. But the point is that we are no longer powerless and at his mercy. The point is through the cross, we can have victory over the devil. Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 say, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this is another outcome of this book. We have the permanent end of the Old Covenant. We have the new bride, which is also pictured as a city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. We have the millennium rule, which is another picture of the kingdom of God reigning on the earth. And we have the dragon chained. We have Satan defeated and the church with authority to overcome the devil. And the final outcome I want to talk about that John gives to his readers to encourage his readers. Remember, Revelation was not to mystify them, not to vex them, but it was to reveal to them things that were to come to pass shortly. And the other thing we see happening is that the two greatest oppositions to the early Christian church, Rome and Judaism, Old Covenant Judaism, are overcome. And so John is writing to encourage his readers who were suffering severe persecution, watching their fellow church members, watching their loved ones suffer, be tormented, be put to death for their faith. And John is writing to encourage them. This book is a book of so much hope. There is amazing hope offered to the first century believers in Revelation, but not only them, offered to us as modern-day 21st century Christians, this book should also inspire us that, yes, God empowered the first century church to overcome all of the obstacles that they were facing, and that likewise, God will continue to empower his church through the ages to bring the fullness of his kingdom to the earth until Jesus comes back to reign physically visibly on the earth. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode. So if we're saying that 
the, the millennium and the bride and all of this is what we're living in now, then what is left? And that's what we're going to talk about next. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon.